Okay, let's go ahead and get started here. I'm sure people are going to keep coming in throughout the talk here, but if we can go ahead and get started, that'd be great. All right. Well, thank you guys for being here. My name is Nate. I am on staff with Master Plan Ministries. It's an affiliate ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ. I'm down at Fort Lewis College. All you guys want to raise your hands? Gosh, this, all, a bunch of these people are all from Fort Lewis. And Fort Lewis is probably the greatest college in all of Colorado. No offense to any of you guys from anywhere else. It's a blast. It's a great mountain town and a wonderful place to be and a wonderful place to be on staff. I get to be friends with guys like Josh. He would uh, take me running and just about kill me all the time. Every time we ran, I felt like my lungs were going to die. But I got in really good shape, at least for a while. This is going to be kind of difficult. I might get going a little fast today, so bear with me. There are three objectives that I hope I can accomplish. I don't know if those will happen or not. But I would like for this talk to be comprehensive, to really discuss a lot of the issues involved in this creation-evolution debate. For it to be scientific, I hope that the evidence is strong in a way that you can go home and take it to your campus and maybe even reproduce some of this information. That's especially why we have the notes up here, so you can get it anytime you want. And these notes are going to be really solid. They're going to have a lot of peer-reviewed journal articles and things like that, or at least references, where you could get a lot of the information and bring this up with a professor, other students, different people like that. So comprehensive, scientific, and understandable. And that's kind of hard to get all three in one hour. And so I, I think we can get two out of three, but we're going to shoot for all three out of three. We could get comprehensive and scientific, but it might not be understandable. We could get comprehensive and understandable. It might not be scientific or scientific and understandable, but we might just hit three points. But we're going to try our best and then see what happens. How much science have you guys taken in here? How many of you feel kind of familiar with a lot of science, have taken several science classes? So quite a bit. So you guys can probably stay with me. And the purpose of this talk is 1 Corinthians 1.20. It says that God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. And it's so true. So often the world comes up with its knowledge and says... This is true, this is true, this is true. And then it changes, right? How many of you guys heard coffee isn't healthy, and then coffee is healthy, and then coffee isn't healthy? Or we just read a study the other day. It said saturated fats might be healthy now. We said, what? That's what they've been saying are unhealthy. See, the world is based in this pattern, and science a lot of times is like this too, where something becomes mainstream for a while, and then it just crashes. And especially when things go up against God and up against His Word, very often... We can see them just collapse in society. It says that he's made foolish the wisdom of this world. If you are an evolutionist that are, that are coming to this talk and you really are interested in exploring this or something along those lines, I would encourage you to have an open mind to the evidence. Evaluate it, check it out, come talk to me if you want, talk to your friends later if you want, and just be open to the evidence. If you're a Christian and you're coming because you want to learn more about this, I hope you really do. But the one thing that I want is for for you to be able to walk away closer to God because you're confident that He is who He says He is and He did what He said He did and you can believe that confidently and you can stand up on your campus for that. I know at Fort Lewis, the most anybody talks against creation is in the non-science classrooms. So everybody on campus hears it. A lot of my science professors would just kind of be like, ah, you know, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. But a lot of the non-scientific professors would just hit it, hit it, hit it all the time. So you guys have probably all heard this topic and I hope that when you go back to your schools, you can realize I can be confident in God's word and what he said and not just from an, an ignorant standpoint but from the scientific facts also. So, in order to accomplish those goals of making it comprehensive, scientific, and understandable, I want to address five main questions that evolution has to deal with and it, and it struggles to deal with, and it can't. And creation, I believe, provides better answers to those five questions. So I hope you learn a lot. I want to start out with a quote by Charles Darwin. He said, Ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. I think that that is what you see when you consider the issue of evolution in our society. You've always heard evolution referred to as fact, and that anybody that disagrees with it is an ignorant moron, right? Haven't you kind of heard that in your schools and things like that? That confidence is based in ignorance. Who was it? It was one of our students. She showed me this quote out of her textbook, and it basically said just that. If you don't believe in evolution, you're an ignorant moron. <laughs> Pretty much almost in those words. That is a confidence based in ignorance, just like Charles Darwin was talking about. Intellectual honesty requires that we look at all the evidence from an objective point of view. 
and evaluate it and see what's really true and what isn't true. And I hope that's what we can do today. Good science maintains scientific integrity and considers all the options. Today is just going to be kind of like a closing argument. It's just a few different things. We won't cover everything, but hopefully we cover enough. This barely scratches the surface of the evidence that exists that goes against evolution. We're not going to be hitting nearly everything. This is, these are just a few main issues. I want to start with a big claim, and that's that Darwin wouldn't believe evolution today. Darwin wouldn't believe in evolution today because he was a man of scientific integrity. If you read a lot of his writings, he was, he was very, very, very scientific, very understanding. And some of his quotes that I'm going to put up here today show that he admitted where a lot of the shortcomings of evolution were. But just the science in his day had not caught up to where it is now, and so those shortcomings hadn't been highlighted. He said, if this could be shown, then my theory would fall apart. Well, science has shown that's true. And so the theory does fall apart. So the scientific method has to be followed for science to occur. Basically, that includes collecting data, forming a hypothesis, testing the hypothesis, and then evaluating and seeing accordingly. Do we need to do more studying? Do we need to alter the hypothesis? Where do we go from here? And the theory of evolution cannot be tested or reproduced under laboratory conditions according to the scientific method. You can't go into a lab with an ape and come out with a human and say, okay, we reproduced it in a laboratory. See, then it's not science if you can't reproduce it in a lab. Good science never starts with excluding options that one dislikes. If you're doing science, you don't go in saying, we're not going to consider this, but we are going to consider this. Good science says, we're going to consider everything. And see, evolutionists, they come to the table and say, we're not going to even consider the, the possibility that a god created it. We're just leaving that out. But that's not good science. And good science is never conducted to prove a point. Good science simply says, what does the evidence say? What, is, what do we find when we look in nature? If we're doing our science to prove a point, then it's not science. And a lot of times that's what happens. You see these studies on bacteria where, where they'll do 20-year studies to prove that evolution happens in a little bacterium. And even then, those studies prove that they're wrong. We'll share a couple of them later. But all that to be said, you cannot just do science to prove a point. It's not good science. All theories of origin require faith. Whether it's evolution or creation, it requires faith. And this is the big thing. Creation is not a science either. I want to make that clear. Some creationists say, creation science. I really personally hate that phrase, creation science, because it's not a science. We can't reproduce Genesis in a laboratory either, but creation does fit better with the data that we see in the universe. It does fit better with what we actually see when we, when we do science. Poor theories have often existed for a long time in the scientific field. Scientists have come up with theories that were very poor and they existed for many, many years and they were eventually disproven, but they existed because of ignorance and because nobody wanted to buck the trend. Nobody wanted to go against the status quo. One of those theories was the caloric theory of heat developed by Lavoisier and Laplace. Lavoisier is considered to be the father of modern chemistry. So he was a huge scientist and they came up with this idea that, that heat was an element. There was a lot of evidence that contradicted this. When you heat up water, it doesn't gain any mass. And so, how could it be an element if there's no mass being gained when it's added to something? And also, friction alone creates heat. So you're not adding anything, it just heats up through friction, right? So there's a lot of evidence that contradicted the theory, but it kept on going because nobody wanted to buck the trend. Nobody wanted to go against the status quo. And I think evolution is at that same point right now. There's so much evidence, and, and it's just increasing dramatically. Many scientists are coming to the conclusion this could not have happened. And a lot of the scientific world just refuses to even look at it. I would talk to my professors when I was a student studying chemistry, and they were clueless. I'd bring this stuff up. They'd never even heard about it. They'd never even, they, they would just be shocked. You are kidding me. I had no clue. And these, these are people with their PhDs that have been researching for decades, right? And they'd never heard about it. So if you're an evolutionist here, I want to challenge you. Are you willing to objectively look at the facts and follow them wherever they lead, even if that includes areas you've previously eliminated as possibilities? And just decide right now, yes or no. If it's no, you might as well leave. But I would challenge you to have an open mind. Look at this evidence and really be willing to investigate it. So before we get too into the rest of the talk, I want to kind of hit a small note. And that's the issue of time. A lot of creationists get really entangled in this issue of time and fight for this idea of a young earth. The earth is only 6,000 years old. It's only 8,000 years old. And they make this their entire argument. And I want to challenge you, that's not where you want to make your argument. It's just not a valid point to go that direction. Time is vital to their theory. That's why they come out with billions of years here, billions of years there. Time is vital to their theory. If you assume 6 million species currently live on the planet, some people say as many as 100 million do. And if you assume that's only one one thousand the number of species that have ever lived, which is a number that's thrown out there in the scientific world, that means 
possibly as many as 6 billion species have lived on this planet over history. Now, if life began 4 billion years ago, like they claim, that's one and a half new species a year. So why don't we see it happening if that is the case, right? The bottom line, though, is that they need time. They need time. And so that's why they come up with these huge, huge, huge amounts of time. We don't need a lot of time. I don't worry about it, though, because Second Peter 3.8 says, With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So when the Bible talks about the seven days of Genesis, you know, there's debate among creationists. Is it literal or not literal? I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. But we know in God's own word, he says a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So for God to be able to talk about those periods, that's, that's his deal. And Genesis 1-2 says that when God created the earth, he started with an earth that was formless and void. So something existed there that he worked with, and that could have been very old. So if you tested it, you might find very old ages. The other thing, too, is when God created Adam, he created him as an adult male with the appearance of age. If you would have said, how old is Adam? How old are you, Aaron, right? Uh, 21. Okay, you're 21. Now, if you just got formed two seconds ago, I'd say, he's probably in his 20s, something like that. But it'd be zero, right? See, Adam was created with appearance of age, so is this earth. So if we were to test the earth itself, we might find very old ages. That's not something worth arguing about, so I just leave it there. You've heard of radiometric dating, the idea that we check radioactive isotopes of different compounds to see how old those things are. You guys have heard creationists talk about clams that were dated at 2 or 3 or 4 billion years old, right? How many of you guys have heard those kinds of figures and numbers? With any scientific study, you can get really odd results, and that's what those are. I would never use those in an argument because any scientist can go, yeah, you know, you can, you can get the weirdest dates you can imagine. The idea is that the science is valid behind radiometric dating if certain assumptions are correct. Those assumptions are that decay rates are constant of those radioactive isotopes, and that's probably true. They're probably constant. We don't have any reason to believe it or not. That the original isotope ratios are the same as current. That's, that means you know there was so much at the beginning and it's decayed to what we have now. We don't know that. In fact, we do have evidence that at times in the past, radioactive isotopes in the atmosphere did change, specifically during the Cambrian era. So right there, there's a big assumption that they make that isn't valid. So when they get these long dates, it's not necessarily 100% solid. They assume that it's a closed system, no outside influence on those rates, and they assume that heat hasn't affected the ratios, even though they know that volcanoes, the heat in the volcano often really affects the dating of those volcanic activities. So they make a lot of assumptions. I want to also put out there that radiometric dating using like carbon-14 is valid to something like 50,000 years if those assumptions are right. Again, I don't think those assumptions are right. So I don't believe that, that they can be very confident in those dates. But I think it's good for you to understand that the science in general is solid so that you don't get yourself into trouble in an argument. Now, those assumptions are not necessarily true. Even if they were true, it would only be valid to 50,000 years, 10 half-lives, 5,000 each. By that time, you'd have none of the radioactive compound left to test. That's basically it. A lot of you guys have heard about the, the issue of starlight, too. How do we get distant starlight in a young universe? If the universe is young, how do we get starlight from 8 million light years away? It is possible with white holes and event horizons and bending in time and space and things like that. Those things are possible, so if you do believe in a young Earth, you're totally cool. You don't have to stress out that the physics goes against that. I think it's consistent. If you want to look more into that, you could read Starlight in Time by D. Russell Humphreys. It's a good book. The bottom line about time is don't get too tangled up in it. It's not an issue worth arguing about. Take the argument, or take the discussion. I'd prefer not to make it an argument. Take the discussion to where it really matters. And that's these five questions that evolution is stumped on. Question number one is where did matter come from in the first place? We know stuff is here. Where did it come from? And that's a huge question. Evolution requires a natural explanation. If you want to explain a natural explanation for life on this earth and how it evolved, you have to say, you have to give a naturalistic explanation for the existence of the stuff that life is made out of, which is matter. And there isn't a way to do that. Evolutionists try to use the Big Bang, which basically just says that matter came to exist out of its constituents or out of its, out of its components, namely energy and things like, you guys have heard Einstein's equation, E equals MC squared. So energy and mass are related. And so they say, well, mass came out of energy during the Big Bang. The problem with that is where did the energy come from, right? See, something had to cause that thing to exist. 
And the evolutionists go back to this idea that energy and matter are eternal, that they've always existed in a kind of series of collapses and constructions and condensations and explosions and all this sort of stuff. It's not going to happen. See, the first law of thermodynamics says energy and matter cannot be created or destroyed. So they have to believe that it's been here for all of eternity because it couldn't be created or destroyed. The second law of thermodynamics, though, says that the entropy of an isolated system, and entropy is just disorder, will increase. And you can think of this in your personal life as, you know, you're born young, you get old and you die, right? The order is going to decrease throughout your life. If you make your room, come back a month or two later, it's not going to be half as nice as when you left it. Entropy increases over time. The universe as a whole is a closed and isolated system. If you bring this argument up with evolutionists, they'll say, well, the Earth is not a closed system. So just give them that. Say, that's fine, but the universe is. The universe is a closed system. And if entropy increases over time, and if the universe and the matter in it have been here for all of eternity, then we would have entropy going to infinity because it's been here for infinity, which means that there would be no order anywhere, anywhere in the universe. That's simply not the case that we see when we look at the universe. I'll challenge anyone from the community of evolutionists to give one explanation for the existence of matter in conformity with the first two laws of thermodynamics. They can't do it. They're stumped. As creationists, we agree that those laws are true and valid. And we agree that because of those laws, at some time in the past, a creator had to have brought this into existence. Matter had to have been created. We have to have a supernatural explanation for the existence of matter. So even if you could get the matter... There's another big question, and that is where did order, design, and information come from? Because they're present everywhere in the universe. Just look around this room. Look at this computer, this projector. Look at the order and design that are present in this universe. Where did they come from? William Dembski came up with criteria for determining whether something was ordered or designed, and that basically says that something has to be complex and improbable, specific, and have a pattern. If it has those four things, then it is designed. It had a designer that caused it to be. DNA is a perfect example of this. It's highly complex. It's not probable. You're not just going to get this randomly. It's very specific and it's patterned. You can see all those things even just in that simple picture. But it encodes all the information needed for every living organism alive on this planet. It's very, very, very full of information. So where did that information and design and order come from? Where did it come from? We know it's designed by those criteria. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence researchers have been looking for evidence of extraterrestrial life since 1984. And they've concluded that something as simple as a series of prime numbers would constitute intelligence somewhere else outside of this planet. Now the problem is, is why don't we get that treatment with what we see on this planet? If a series of prime numbers is evidence of intelligence, then why in the world isn't DNA evidence of intelligence? Design is present throughout the universe. The anthropic principle is something you've probably all heard of. It basically just states that there are factors needed in exact precision and accuracy for life on this planet to be possible. Water is one of those things. Water is less dense as a solid than it is as a liquid, which means it floats. If ice didn't float, it would sink. As soon as it freezed on the top, it, the ice would sink, and then it would sink, and then it would sink. And before you know it, the oceans would freeze solid. Now, if the oceans freeze solid, they're what buffers the temperature of the Earth. If they freeze solid, the whole Earth freezes solid. Life isn't possible on the planet at that point. But because of that one characteristic of water, which is very peculiar, life on Earth is possible. Others would include the relationship between the nuclear weak force and gravity. If it was any different, hydrogen would turn to helium. No chemistry on this planet would be possible. No water on this planet would be possible. Another example would be the difference in mass between a proton and a neutron. If they weren't exactly the way they are, the protons would switch to neutrons and, and vice versa. And you wouldn't have any chemistry possible. The human body synthesizes 150 times 10 to the 18th amino acids per second. Amino acids are the building blocks of proteins, which make up everything in your body. Your body's making 150 with 18 zeros of those every second in perfect accuracy. That's design like no computer on this planet can demonstrate. It's pretty significant. Okay, so this universe is full of design. We can't say that there's only a naturalistic explanation for that design. Nobody can give us one. Give me a naturalistic explanation for a computer chip or the pyramids. See, when we see design, we recognize it had a designer behind it, and they didn't just come to exist. We can't just say erosion and wind caused that computer chip to exist. It doesn't work like that. There's no explanation that would work. So information and design require an intelligent source. 
Dr. Stephen Meyer put it this way, we know that Bill Gates does not employ wind or erosion or random number generators to generate his software. Instead, he employs intelligent engineers because it takes intelligence to create design. It takes a designer to create design. And when we see design throughout the universe, there's a designer behind it. Einstein put it this way, for everybody that says you're being unscientific if you believe a God is behind everything that we see in the universe, Einstein put it this way, everyone who is seriously involved in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that a spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, a spirit vastly superior to that of man, and one in the face of which we with our modest powers must feel humble. See, science directs us to this designer behind the creation that we're investigating. I'll challenge anyone from the community of evolutionists to give one example of information and design arising through random natural processes. They cannot do it. It doesn't happen. As creationists, we agree with the evidence that intelligence and intentionality are always behind the information and design that we observe in the universe. So let's say you got matter, and then let's say you got design and information. You have to get life, because evolution requires that you have life for it to work, right? So where did life come from? Life is not simple. It's very complex. It's, it's extremely detailed. Look at the complexity of this cell. You have all these components throughout the entire cell. We don't even have the time to name them all. But a cell is not a simple thing. It's very extremely complex. And that's just the basis for life. And in your body, you have specialized cell for every tissue, for every organ, for every part of your body. This is very, 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 very specific. So the design that's, that's present there is unbelievable. So where did this come from? How did this come to be? You guys have all heard in the primordial soup, some organic molecules just popped out and that's how we got eventually to cells. Probably all of you have been taught that in school. My biochemistry professor said it all started there in the primordial soup. That's where life began. And I went to her after class and I said, I said, I'd be ashamed to put a PhD in front of my name and then say something like that in class. It's just foolish. It didn't happen that simply. Now this is why. In chemistry we study reaction kinetics. How likely is it that this molecule is going to form from these other compounds, right? How likely is it? The likelihood that you would get the first organic molecules needed to make life. See, life needs DNA. You can't have life without DNA. And to get DNA, you need nucleotides and amino acids. Those are the building blocks of DNA. So, what's the likelihood you'll get those nucleotides and amino acids that you need? Well, scientists have calculated it to be 1 in 10 to the 40,000th power. 1 in 10 to the 40,000th power, that you could get those things to combine, even if the right materials were there in the first place. Okay, 1 in 10 to the 45th is statistically impossible. So by statistics, that's 1,000 times impossible. <laughs> Don't tell me it just happened. How did it happen? It's 1,000 times impossibility. It's like winning 5,714 state lotteries in a row with only one ticket each. It's not going to happen. But even if it did happen, it has to go the next step. Let's say we got the nucleotides and amino acids to form. Well, they're going to form in what scientists call racemic mixtures. And bear with me, this is the part everybody always says, I don't get that part at all. And basically, organic compounds are chiral, often. Some are, but most of them are. Nucleotides are. And what it means is they have a handedness. So just like you have a right hand and a left hand, right? Molecules are the same way. They'll come up with different handedness. Now, when you make a nucleotide, it's going to have right-handed versions and left-handed versions. Now, to get the first cell, you need 100,000 nucleotides, 10,000 amino acids to all link up in a row, but only one version, only the right-handed version. But that's out of a 50-50 mixture. You can think of it like this. Imagine you had a 50-50 mixture of train cars and train cabooses, and you want to get 110,000 train cars to link up out of that 50-50 mixture. You're never going to get that. What you're going to get is one or two, maybe three if you're lucky, cars, and then a caboose, right? You're never going to get 110,000 to link up in a row. And that's exactly what happens with those nucleotides and amino acids inside your cell. They will never link up if there's a 50-50 mixture. This is such a problem for evolutionists that they came up with the International Symposium on the Generation and Amplification of Asymmetry in Chemical Systems. Sounds exciting. But anyway, they've summarized it like this. A wrong-handed amino acid disrupts the stability of the alpha helix in proteins. DNA could not be established in a helix if even a single wrong-handed monomer were present, so it could not support life. See, even if you've got the materials in the first place, you're never going to get the components for DNA to come out of that. It's never going to happen. The, the chances of that happening are 1 in 10 to the 33,113th power. 
So again, almost a thousand times impossibility. That's something like winning 4,700 lotteries in a row with one ticket each. It's not going to happen. Now, even if they did, even if you got the molecules to form and then got them to line up correctly, that's just two very small parts of a very complex cell that needs to be there for life to happen. The probability of getting all the different components of that cell to come together is, excuse the math, but 1 in 10 to the 112,827th power. That's like 3,000 times impossibility. See, this is not going to happen. And if you're an evolutionist, you have to be able to tell how life came to exist because science doesn't give us any natural way that it could have come to exist. Now, even if those components were assembled, give them all that, even though it's never going to happen, take, a, take a, a cell, take a little cell, and kill it. Just kill the cell. It still has every component existing together and all in the right order, but it's not alive. Life is still a mystery. Even if you get the components into the right place in the right order, they're not alive yet. They're not alive yet. And so life is a mystery, and we don't know where life comes from or how it originates. And there's no way to explain naturally how it happens. Okay, now even if you could get life, so even if you could get matter, and even if you could get order and design and information, and even if you could get life, before you can tell me evolution is true, you have to give me a, a mechanism. How did it happen? Step by step. See, it's not science unless you give me a mechanism. If, without a mechanism, it's a just-so story. How many of you take an organic chemistry? How many of you guys like reaction mechanisms? <laughs> no? Okay, it's, it's, that's, that's all you study in OCHEM, right? Yeah, you guys hate me now for talking about this. You're supposed to be on break. Anyway, evolution would require a mechanism also. Charles Darwin proposed natural selection acting on mutations as the mechanism for evolution. But there's a problem with that. It doesn't work. <laughs> natural selection is real. Okay, imagine you have a brown house. It's hard to tell the color there. But imagine you have a brown house. And you put into it a population of 90% white mice. Remember these numbers, 90% white mice, 10% brown mice. Okay, the population is originally how much white? 90. 90%. How much brown? 10%. Okay, throw in my cat. This is my cat. Here's my wife, Erin, back there. I forgot to introduce her. She's waving. This is our cat, Mo, And he's a great cat. Throw him in the house, and what's the population going to shift to? Brown, right? Why? The cat sees the white ones, right? Because the brown ones blend in with the brown environment. The white ones stick out, and so the cat finds them faster. So the population is going to shift quickly to predominantly brown mice. But are, are they both mice? There's no evolution that occurred, right? So natural selection is real and valid, but it's not a valid mechanism for evolution. You could think of the peppered moth example. You guys have probably seen this in an evolution section of a biology textbook, right? What's your name? You're, you're nodding back there. You've seen it. Before the Industrial Revolution, peppered moths existed in both the lighter color, right there, see it blending in, and the darker color. And before the Industrial Revolution in England, there was lichen on trees. And the lighter colored moths blended in very well with that lichen. And the darker moths, they didn't, so they got eaten by birds. So the population was predominantly light colored moths. After the Industrial Revolution, the lichen fell off because of all the soot and pollution. And the black moths blended in really well, while the lighter colored ones stood out. So what happened to the population, do you think? It shifted back to darker colored moths from lighter colored moths. But they're both moths. They're both moths. We don't have any new creature coming to exist. Now that's natural selection. So they have to come up with a way to say, we got new genetic information. We got, we got a new organism that natural selection preserved. And so they say mutations do that. You guys have all heard about this idea that mutations provide what's necessary for evolution to occur. Now the problem is, mutations do not provide the amount of biological change necessary for evolution to occur. After six peer-reviewed journal studies that spanned over two decades, studying whether or not mutations could add information to the genome of bacteria or to all the genes of bacteria, researchers concluded we see that no new information got into the genome. Indeed, it turns out that each of those mutations actually lost information. They made the gene less specific, therefore none of them can play the role of the small steps that are supposed to lead to macroevolution. It doesn't happen. Mutations decrease information, they don't increase information. They don't ever add anything new. Dr. Lee Spetner put it this way, in all the reading I've done in the life sciences literature, I've never found a mutation that added information. All point mutations that have been studied on the molecular level turn out to reduce genetic information and not increase it. The problem continues. 
You guys have heard probably of irreducible complexity and intelligent design, an issue that's been documented by Michael Behe, who's a scientist, a biochemist, and he came up with this idea of irreducible complexity. And it basically just says that life can't evolve through numerous successive slight modifications, a little change here, a little change there, little bit by little bit, because each of those parts need each other to exist. So you can't get A before B before C because A, B, and C all need each other. Does that make sense? You can kind of think of it like this. In this mousetrap, you have a catch, a platform, a spring, a hammer, and a holding bar. If any one of those components is gone, the mousetrap won't work. It just doesn't function. So it's a useless mousetrap. Now that's the same thing with organisms. If you look at this bacterial flagellum, it has all these different parts, the filament, the cap, the junction, the hook, the L ring, the rod, the P ring, the stator, the M ring, the S ring, the C ring, the export apparatus, and all these things have to be functioning together for this flagellum to work. Now flagellum is what gets the bacterium where he needs to go. It's his motor, it's his transport. If that doesn't work, what happens? Imagine a bacterium with just a tail hanging out. Is he going to be able to go anywhere? He's just going to sit there and die, right? <laughs> He's not going to be able to get where he needs to go, do what he needs to do. He's done. Evolution is not going to preserve him. So even if we say this hook developed and then the filament developed, but it didn't have the rest of the apparatus to turn it, you got a dead organism that's not going to go anywhere. This is a big, 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 big problem for evolutionists. Darwin himself put it this way, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. That's exactly what we see. See, they didn't understand all this back in his time. Now we do. And we see that according to his own words, his theory completely breaks down. The Bombardier beetle is another great example of this. It has two little pinks that separate chemicals from each other inside its abdomen. When those chemicals are squirted out the back and combined outside the body, they form an explosive spray that wards off predators, right? You can see that in that picture right there. Now the problem is, is those chemicals, if they, if they mix inside, he's dead. He explodes, right? So how did these two, how did these two tanks evolve in succession if they both have to exist for the thing to survive? See, they couldn't form in a progression or a succession. They had to both be there at the same time for either of them to work. And see, that's not what we see in evolution. It just doesn't work. So there are no significantly new species that have ever come out in existence that we can observe. Minor speciation does occur. Modern sheep that we have have been bred and bred and bred from wild sheep like we see in the mountains around here, over time, and they no longer breed with the parent species, so to say. That's kind of the standard explanation for what speciation is. And so there was speciation by definition. Does that make sense? By definition, it's a different species. The problem, though, is that they don't have any different genetic information. They're not. You know, the sheep isn't flying now. It doesn't have any new features that none of its parents had. Does that make sense? See, we do not see speciation with new features. We don't see speciation with new components. That does not happen. And evolution has to go further than just speciation by definition. You have to have new genetic information. You have to have significant physical additions outside of the existing genus, phylum, class, order, family, all that sort of stuff. We don't see any evolution happening outside of what's already there. We just don't see it. George Gaylord Simpson put it this way, every paleontologist knows that most new species, genera, and families, and that nearly all categories above the level of family appear in the record suddenly and are not led up to by known, gradual, completely continuous transitional sequences. And Stephen Jay Gould, who is probably the most respected evolutionist since Darwin. He died a few years ago. He was on The Simpsons. You guys might have seen that one episode. I don't know. He wrote, The theory of evolution by gradual mutation is effectively dead despite its persistence as textbook orthodoxy. It means even though you're reading it in your textbook, it's dead. The theory is not valid. So he came up with his own idea called punctuated equilibrium, which we'll just mention briefly in a minute. So I'll challenge anyone from the community of evolutionists to give one example of positive mutations or series of mutations which increase the genome of a species, provide new information and new features, because it just doesn't happen anywhere in nature. As creationists, we agree with the biological law that like begets like. You guys probably heard that. It means that species A gives birth to species A, not B. That's a biological law, and that's what we as creationists believe. We believe what fits with the empirical data. If evolution did happen, you'd have to see it in the fossil record. So what does the fossil record say? In the Cambrian explosion, which is a period back 500 million years ago, supposedly, there were 50-something phyla, or body types of organisms. 
Today on this planet, they're around 33. So we've had a decrease in biodiversity over history. That's exactly what creationists believe, that, boom, God created life, all these organisms, and over time, some go extinct. That's what we believe. They believe you start small and you get bigger. When we look at the fossil record, we see exactly what creationists believe, that there's a decrease in biodiversity, not an increase in biodiversity. That's a, a fundamental issue that I think they have to deal with. Darwin acknowledged this problem. They did know enough about the fossil record at the time that he came up with his theory to describe this. He put, why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. And this, perhaps, is the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against my theory. Again, he was a man of scientific integrity. He was willing to say that. Not many other scientists today are, but he was willing to admit it. Because of that, they come up with all these peculiar methods. Geologists, I know, will date the, the layer of rock that they're studying by the fossils that are in it, and then they'll turn around and date the fossils that are in it by the layer of rock that they're in. It's kind of circular reasoning. I asked a geologist about that one time, and he said, this was his answer, it's not as stupid as it sounds. <laughs> and I said, why? Why is it not as stupid as it sounds? He goes, it's complicated, but it's just not as stupid as it sounds. See, they can use subjective methods to get to where they want to be. They can say, well, this is so old because of that, but that's so old because of this. And so we can play this game and get it as old as we need to for our theory so that we can then say you can't ever test it in a lab because it takes billions of years. See, they're backing themselves out of strong science into this hypothetical philosophy, and it's not strong science. The late Dr. Colin Patterson, senior paleontologist of the British Museum of Natural History, stated in a letter to Luther Sutherland, this is interesting, Luther Sutherland wrote him and said, you just wrote this book about evolution, you didn't include one picture of a transitional species. And this is what he replies, I fully agree with your comments about the lack of direct illustration of evolutionary transitions in my book. If I knew of any fossil or living, I would certainly have included them. I will lay it on the line. There is not one such fossil for which one can make a watertight argument. He's willing to say, yeah, we don't have any evidence in the fossils that there are transitions and intermediaries and missing links, so to say. The Cambrian explosion, like I said, is a huge problem. All this life comes to being without any, any evolution happening. Such a problem for evolutionists that Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldridge had to come up with the theory of punctuated equilibrium, which is just an offshoot of evolution. It's still an evolutionary theory. It's still hotly contested. I believe that the explanation that fits best with the fossil record is a flood. And that's why we see what we see. You'd expect the smallest or bottom-dwelling or least complex organisms to be at the bottom because they wouldn't survive in a flood. They'd be buried instantly. While the larger, more complex organisms would swim around before, for a while and they'd get stuck at the top. You kind of expect that if you were thinking about this in terms of a flood. That is exactly what we see. Smaller organisms at the bottom, more complex at the top. My favorite evidence for this is polystrate fossils. There's a ton of evidence for this, but just one that I wanted to hit. And those are, are fossils of trees that go through multiple strata. Now, if each of these strata took tens of thousands of years to solidify, how in the world do we get one tree going through all of them? Kind of hard, right? See, but a flood easily explains that. Now, see, what evolutionists do is they say, well, we have to use this principle called uniformitarianism, which means that we can't explain processes in the past using any kind of explanation that doesn't exist currently today. So if you want to explain the Grand Canyon, you have to use it, you have to say the river caused it. You couldn't say a flood caused it. You can only use natural processes that you see occurring today and not catastrophes or other processes. Okay, now there are a couple reasons it does not work. First of all, polonium radio halos are found in granites on every continent of the planet. Polonium is a radioactive isotope and you can see radio halos of radiation that were trapped in granites. So how fast did granites form if it was fast enough to trap that radiation? Pretty fast, right? So, boom, theory number one that, that those granites solidified over tens of thousands of years is not valid. They happen kind of instantly. But the part that's really significant here about uniformitarianism is this. Polonium today never exists aside from being a byproduct of uranium. So whenever you see polonium radio halos today, you see a uranium radio halo around it. So in the past, though, polonium was able to exist somehow aside from being a byproduct of uranium decay. So we know that different things happen in the past that don't necessarily happen on this earth today. That doesn't happen anymore, but at some time in the past it did. Another huge problem for this uniformitarianism idea is the Kebab uplift in the Grand Canyon. Many of you guys have probably heard about this. And what happens is the Grand Canyon cuts through the southern slope of the Kebab uplift. So you have the canyon and it goes right through an uphill pattern. 
But if a river was carving it out, when a river gets to an uphill part, what's going to happen? It's going to go around it, right? And so you'd expect that since it cuts through the southern part of it, that you'd see it flowing downhill to the south. Go right around it and go down the other way. But if this river cut it, which is what uniformitarianism says happened, how in the world did it cut right through an uphill portion? It's never going to happen in a million years. And this is stump geologists. They have no idea whatsoever. The fossil record for human development is totally lacking. I have tons of examples of all the intermediary species that you've all seen. There are none that nobody can test. They're all totally debatable. There are only two that they suppose are even intermediates between humans and apes. That's Homo erectus and Homo habilis. Both those are still hotly contested, though, and they could be either ape or human. You've heard of Neanderthals being pre-human. Well, they were able to finally extract DNA from some Neanderthal bones. They found they're 99.5% identical with your average human. They're totally compatible with us. They could breed with a modern human. So a lot of these intermediaries have just totally fallen away. Dr. Henry G. put it this way, fossil evidence of human evolutionary history is fragmentary and open to various interpretations. He just said, look, you know, this picture that you've seen a million times, he says, looks nice in a book, but we don't have any fossil evidence for that. Here's another great picture, too. This is uh, of Lucy. You guys have heard of Lucy, the skeleton that Richard Leakey found. And somehow from this, you get this. I don't know how they do that. A couple bones, and you get this huge, incredible creature. Or my favorite is KNMER1470, which is a habilis skull found by the Leakeys. And uh, this is the drawing that you get from that skull. And that skull is the best preserved skull that they have of that entire species. In fact, Leakey is quoted in the June 1973 issue of National Geographic discussing this skull, saying, either we toss out the 1470 skull or we toss out all our theories of early man. See, it doesn't line up. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't line up. So again, a couple quotes. Dr. Stephen J. Gould says, all paleontologists know that the fossil record contains precious little in the way of intermediate forms. Transitions between major groups are characteristically abrupt. He says the fossil record is not on our side. And Dr. Stephen Stanley says the known fossil record fails to document a single example of phyletic evolution accomplishing a major morphologic transition and hence offers no evidence that a gradualistic model can be valid. So again, guys, the fossil record doesn't work with it either. So when you look at all this different evidence, what's happening? A lot of evolutionists are starting to turn away from this science of evolution, realizing that it has holes and that it has a lot of problems and that a lot of things are are very wrong with it. Many scientists will point to the other fields. If you guys go home and talk to your chemistry professor about the problems in chemistry, if you use those statistics and say, how did did the first cell form, if you couldn't get the nucleotides and the amino acids to form the way they need to, he's probably going to say, okay, you you got a point there, but the biologists have the answer. They can prove evolution happened. I've had professors do this with me. If you go talk to the biologist about the issues in the theory on their side, they'll say, oh, the physicists have the answers because the Big Bang happened. If you talk to the physicists, they'll send you somewhere else, to anthropologists or something like that. Very few scientists are confident in the evidences of their own field. And a lot of them that have scientific integrity and honesty are willing to look at the data and reject it. Some of those would include Francis Crick, and I want to just make a note, He did not reject evolution, simply the possibility that it ever happened on this earth. Francis Crick is one of the most renowned scientists of the last hundred years. He's the co-discoverer of the DNA molecule, or of the double helix structure of DNA, I should put. He won the Nobel Prize for that work. He's one of the most respected scientists of the last hundred years. And this is his idea, is that directed panspermia is responsible for the life on this earth. That means that aliens shot basically a life missile to this earth, which started the evolutionary process going. So he believes in evolution, but he says the possibility of it starting here is so impossible. Aliens must have done it. Now here's my question. If Francis Crick can write that, and that was in a peer-reviewed journal that he wrote that, if he can write that in a peer-reviewed journal, how in the world can we, as creationists, not say, well, let's consider the possibility that an intelligent designer caused it to be. I mean, he can say aliens did it, but we can't say an intelligent designer did it? See, there are two standards here. There are two standards here, and that's not right. And again, Stephen Jay Gould's quote, I've quoted it already, but I'll share it again because it's my favorite quote on this topic. He said, The theory of evolution by gradual mutation is, quote, effectively dead despite its persistence as textbook orthodoxy. That was also written in a journal in Paleobiology, Volume 6, 1980, page 120. 
See, a lot of these scientists are acknowledging there are significant problems with this theory, and we have to figure out what we're going to believe. And like I said in the beginning, Darwin wouldn't believe it today. Darwin had the scientific integrity and the intellectual honesty to say, look, these are problems with my theory. And I want to quote just these two different quotes of Darwin again, because they're so solid. He said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. And that's what we've seen through irreducible complexity. We've seen that that's exactly what happens. You cannot show how they came to exist through a series of small steps of successive slight modifications. Then he said, why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain, and this is perhaps the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against the theory. That's actually in The Origin of Species that he wrote that. So you have the intellectual honesty to acknowledge there are major problems. We've seen that those problems are very well documented in modern science. And I think a lot of scientists would do well to have the same level of scientific integrity that he had, to admit it, say, look, there are problems. Now, I believe creation fits better with the evidence. Those five fundamental questions, where did matter come from? There's no naturalistic explanation for the existence of matter. Somebody had to cause it to to exist. There's no explanation for the existence of design and information and order. As creationists, we have a great answer for that one, right? Where did life come from? Naturalistic processes don't give me a mechanism for life to exist. How did evolution occur? They're stumped on that one. The mechanism doesn't work, and they admit that. And what does the fossil record say? It says exactly what we as creationists believe, that life started out with a tremendous amount of biodiversity when God created creation, and that reduced over time to what we have now. So as creationists, you can be confident that what we believe does fit with the data that we see in the universe. But again, neither is a science. Creation is not a science. I can't reproduce it in the lab. But it does agree with the science that we see. It does agree with the science that we see. Okay. If evolution is to be taught in schools, have the integrity to teach its holes and shortcomings and alternative theories as well. If you're going to preach evolution in a science classroom, teach its holes and other theories. Why not? That's just being scientifically honest. What other scientific theories would we prevent all the evidence from being discussed? If you went to a chemistry class, you guys in chemistry, and you asked a question, they say, you can't ask that in chemistry. You'd, you'd say, what are you telling me? Right? There's no other theory that exists in science where we just say, don't ask questions about it. And don't bring up the holes. Don't bring up the problems. But that's what they do with evolution. And see, that's not good science. And we need to address those things. So what are the implications of an evolutionary worldview. So if you espouse an evolutionary worldview, what are the implications of that? Many of the world's most feared dictators were devout evolutionists. Their actions were logical outcomes of an evolutionary worldview. If you believe that you have no purpose except to survive and eventually die, and that you have no destiny, and that there's no morality or theology or no God that is holding you accountable for what you do, why not just murder 10 million people? If it's going to benefit your survival, you might as well. See, that's a logical outcome of an evolutionary worldview. Not to say that all evolutionists are like that at all. Don't get me wrong. But it is a logical outcome of that theory. Bad implications don't mean the theory is false. So I'm not saying don't believe it because the implications are bad. That's not the case. The evidence shows it's not valid to believe in. And also the outcomes of that theory can be disastrous. Again, I want to just close with the purpose of this talk, which was... If you are an evolutionist that is interested in learning more, be open-minded and be willing to check out the evidence and look into it. If you're a believer, be confident in what you believe. And I really want to close on this note. Don't ever make this like a beat-you-over-the-head thing. Some Christians, when they get into apologetics, they just want to run people over. And that's not right. And I'll just share a brief story. My wife and I, we had a girl in our ministry a couple years ago. She'd been hanging out with us a whole lot, and she hadn't made a decision to trust Christ yet. And when we'd ask her why she hadn't made a decision to trust Christ, she'd say, evolution. That's why. Because evolution. And so Aaron told her, why don't you come over to dinner some night, and Nate will share some stuff, some evidences about evolution with you. So she came over, and I got out these very notes, and I started to share just a couple different points with her, and she's just gone. Like, she's, she's not even there. She doesn't understand the science. She's not like most of you that have taken a lot of science classes. The deal was, is there was another issue in her life. 
from her past that was really keeping her from putting her trust in God. And she was using this evolution deal as a smokescreen. Now, it'd be terrible for me to just run her over with the evidence. We ended up talking about what's really in your past, you know, what, what really happened. And she just, she cried for like two hours at our house. And we told her about the forgiveness that God wanted to give her. And that night she didn't make a decision to trust Christ. But about a year and a half later, she did. Now she's your sister and my sister in Christ. It's an awesome thing. So I want to challenge you and encourage you. Know the evidence. Bring it up appropriately. But don't run over people. Don't blaze over people with evidence. Be sensitive to what God's doing in their heart. Because that's way more important than what they believe about the theory of evolution. But as a creationist, you can be confident in what you believe in, right? And I guess I'd make it another quick note. Be careful how you bring it up with professors. Because that one lady docked my grade from an A to a B in her class. So she did not like the fact that that I had challenged her on it. So be careful. Know your stuff before you go talk to them. And the the thing to remember is most most of those professors, they've never heard this stuff. You know, they just went through their programs, and a lot of them have never heard the evidence that goes against evolution. So I've found that most professors I brought this up with were very receptive. That one lady was the only one that was ever antagonistic about it. All my other professors were just shocked. In fact, I had an inorganic chemistry professor who I took environmental chemistry with him. In the first class of the year, he had this entire presentation on how evolution is how we all came to exist. You know, that was like the way he started out each class. I went and shared all this info with him. And the next semester, I took inorganic chemistry with him. In the first day of class, he comes out with an, a totally new presentation. He says, every worldview has its own creation myth, or its own creation idea of how we all came to be. He said, evolution is the creation myth of science. A lot of scientists have bought into it, but it's just simply our creation myth for a lot of people that are, are part of our worldview. But every worldview has its own. He never, I don't think, became a creationist, but he definitely was willing to admit there are a lot of big problems with the theory of evolution. So be sensitive how you bring it up. Keep the focus on what's important and not on small things. And uh, I guess that's it. i got to just share a really neat quote from Einstein. But this is really good. I had always told people, and this is, this is to my shame, people would always tell me Einstein was a Christian. Did you know that? And I'd say, no, no, no. I know he believed in God, but I, I don't believe he was a Christian because I've never heard that much about it. So I finally said, you know, I really got to investigate this for myself because I've told about 30 different people that that's not the case. And, and I found some interesting stuff. And this one quote was particularly interesting. He, he really did believe in Jesus. And uh, as, as somebody that was a scientist and probably the most respected scientist in history, that's really neat to know that he was definitely somebody that believed in a creator, that believed in God and specifically believed in Jesus Christ. In the Saturday Evening Post, October 26, 1929, they interviewed Einstein. They said, to what extent are you influenced by Christianity? He replied, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. They asked, have you ever read Emil Ludwig's book on Jesus? He replied, Emil Ludwig's Jesus is shallow. Jesus is too colossal for the pen of phrasemongers, however artful. No man can dispose of Christianity with a bon mot. So they, they asked, you accept the historical Jesus? He responded, unquestionably, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. And I read a quote by one of his co-workers, one of the scientists that worked right alongside him, that said, oftentimes we thought he was more of a theologian than a scientist. It was kind of an interesting quote. Anyway, I hope you guys learned a lot today. I hope you feel like you're going away with something. If you want to ask questions, feel free to hang around and talk. And we'll just close with that. Thanks for coming.